Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. You know, the words of the Apostle Paul, they're often overlooked or lost if you don't in detail. I mean, really, in detail, because, you know, in one verse sometimes there can be so much information and so much deep truth that if you don't take the time to really look at it, you're going to miss so much. And there's an example of this in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 5, verse 16. You don't have to open there, but just listen for a moment. You know, Paul is saying, it's very profound. Paul says, we know no man after the flesh. Hey, we being believers. We no longer know Christ after the flesh. And we know no man after the flesh. Once you become a believer, you never again see anyone simply as flesh. As a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you no longer see people just bound by physical birth and physical death. You see, or you should see, all humanity as spiritual beings bound for either hell or heaven for eternity. And where they end up determines what they do with Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have to get our perspective outside of just what's simply in front of us in the physical day after day. Amen? What we want to grow in is an eternal perspective of life. Not only seeing other people in light of eternity, but seeing your own walk, your own thinking, how you respond to life on any given day with an eternal perspective. That's why we come. You know, there's something about the church today, and I think the latest Gallup poll says that 85% of Americans profess to be Christians. But yet it's only 9% that read their Bibles, believe in the Bibles, and hold to a biblical worldview. That's astounding. And I think by this larger percentage, it's really made visible through the professing church today, in that Christianity is viewed as finding success here on earth. That's really what modern evangelicalism has become, especially in America. Rather than knowing God deeply and going deep in the truth of God and allowing this deep truth to transform my thinking, which in turn will transform my very what? Life. And everything begins with what? Thinking. Everything begins with knowledge, as we've been studying these deep doctrinal truths in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. And when that happens, when the life begins to transform, we'll give assurance as to whether your faith is real or not. So I ask you, how do you view your life? How do you allow everyday life, how do you allow everyday circumstances to either reveal the person of Jesus Christ in you or to hinder his work through you? Because the way that we respond to everyday life manifests what you believe and who you believe in. You know, does your comfort level, or the lack thereof, affect or limit Christ from being seen in and through you? Is the question. And that takes us into chapter 4 of Ephesians, because you know where we're moving from, guys? We studied your position in Christ as a believer, right? In chapters 1 through 3, we're under, we've come to understand that your position in Christ, because of who you are in Him, all of His righteousness placed upon your account makes you perfectly righteous in the sight of God. Without blame. That's called justification by faith. Declared free from all blame, sin, past, present, future. Paid for at the cross. That's your position. That's who you are in Christ, if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ... All of your sin is still held against you. 
And when you die, you will face God and you will be judged for that sin, which is to be eternally separated from him. The gospel is very simple, in which it means good news. To overcome that bad news, you step into a living, loving relationship with Christ by the work that he's done. That's why we're here. So we're transitioning now from all of the, the positional truth, all of the doctrinal truth, transferring that into practical application. Because I, who I am, this is how I live. This is who you are. Therefore, this is how you ought to live. From the high calling of Christ to the low and humble walk of a Christian. Christ lowered himself, which we'll get into later in chapter 4. He lowered himself into the lower parts of the earth to become a human being. He came out of glory and became flesh and blood like you and I. Flesh and blood dwelling together, sweating and everything else. Amen? To bear your sin and to bear my sin on a cross. So here in Ephesians 4, we have the association of who we are and then the responsibility to live according to who we are. High position. We're one with the Lord. That's the promises of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Living a life that rightly reflects the one who paid the price for you. You know, this principle is really common throughout human life. When anyone becomes involved in any organization, there are certain standards that have to be met to belong to that organization, right? To become part of any team, if you don't listen to the coach, if you're not coachable, you don't play. You hold the position of bench warmer, right? Clubs, societies, organizations, people will strive and work hard to become part of something, to, to belong to something, all for the sake of getting a little badge or a little pin or your name on a plaque or a uniform. And in society, it's funny how that's really cool with us and we can handle that. But when that same principle is transferred into the body of Christ, people seem to have a big problem with it. You know, people come to church and they want the blessings, they want the fellowship, they want this association of belonging, but they're not willing to commit to the standard of what it takes to uphold your association. You're associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Christians are held accountable to that, and church discipline is put on them, and they're saying, look, either repent or you're out, they have a problem. But this is church. That's not fair. See, the bottom line is this, guys. If you're God's, you are holy. Because he says so. We're known as the saints, right? Saints are not some patriarch of the past that some organization or some board gets together and deems who's saint-worthy. If you are in Christ, you are washed by the blood of Christ, therefore you are a saint. And because you are a saint, therefore this is how you shall live. Because you are a saint, you are set apart. Yeah, you're justified, remember? Positionally righteous. The moment you're justified, you are immediately sanctified. In that process of sanctification, we play part in it. Which means we have to set ourselves apart unto holiness. We have to pursue holiness because you are holy. God's people are holy and therefore they're called to be righteous. Because you're holy, you're called to live righteously. You know, a lot of people believe, or they assume rather, that because it's justification by faith alone that we don't have to do anything. You know, Paul knew that that argument would come up, and he knew that by the abounding grace of Almighty God, people will say, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because God is most greatly glorified through salvation. Salvation comes by grace, right? 
unmerited favor. And when we receive this grace, I believe, I'm called to believe by faith alone. I'm, I'm given grace by God, therefore, why, should I, why do I need to do all this stuff? Paul said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How can we who died to sin live any more in it? He knew the arguments would come. Martin Luther, as he declared the doctrine of justification by faith alone, said this. Justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. James says the same thing in chapter 2. He says faith without works is what? Dead. If we say we have faith, but no works to follow, that's clear evidence that our justification was no justification at all. If justification happens, sanctification is sure to follow. If it doesn't, there's no reason to believe that justification ever happened. If one is not set apart unto holiness and pursuing holiness because you are holy, there's no reason to believe that justification happened. So here in Ephesians, we're walking out the, the justification that we have an understanding of through chapters 1, 2, and 3. And as we look at this first verse today in chapter 4, all of the rest of the book looks back to verse 1, chapter 4. The church is called to be holy. If there's unrepentant sin within a believer's life, Matthew 18 says you go one-on-one, -on -one, you go to them one-by-one. One. You go to them one person before your brother or sister. If they do not repent, you bring two or three. If they do not repent, you bring them before the church. If they do not repent, Matthew 18, you cast them out. If there's people walking disorderly within the body, 2 Thessalonians, you put them out. Always give them the chance to repent, but if they're disorderly, you put them out. Teaching false doctrine. If they don't repent, you put them out. And sometimes, when a believer remains in unrepentant sin, you know what God will do? He'll put them out. In other words, he'll take their very life. Because they are saved, they're not bringing glory to God, he will take their life. 1 John 5.16 says this, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. In other words, there's no amount of intercessory prayer that will be effective for someone who's so far gone in rebellion, and God will take them out because they're bringing no glory to God. Because they are holy, they're not living holy, they're living in rebellion, and God will take them out. Ananias and Sapphira. God took them out like that. I had a friend who I knew who shared the gospel with me back in the 80s. He was so on fire for God. When I finally got saved, I ran out to him. I ran into him in public, and I saw him from a distance. But I said, I'm thinking in my mind, wow, when he sees me, he's going to be so excited that I'm a Christian. And I walked up to him. He didn't recognize me at first. He was living like, acting like, and talking like a full-on pagan. Now, over months, and even about two years, I urged him to repent. And I didn't see him for a long period of time. And then I had heard that he had gotten in a terrible car accident. He healed from that. He got in a motorcycle accident. He healed from that. And then he called me. And he says, hey, my brother's caught up into a cult, John. I know that you know the Bible really well. And I was wondering if you could give me some verses that would help sway my brothers from this cult. And his name was Billy. And I said, you know what, Billy? I said, you're a guy who used to know the word. And at one time, you were able to sway your brother. But let's just look past your brother for a moment, and let's look at your own life. Because this phone call has to do about you. And I want to urge you as your brother in Christ, as I hold you accountable to who you are in Christ, I'm urging you to repent. You know what his response was? I got to go. Click. And I got a phone call two weeks later from an acquaintance of both of us. And... This acquaintance said, hey, I just wanted you to know that Billy was out in the desert 
riding his motorcycle. He was drunk as a skunk, and he hit a dune buggy at midnight head-on and died instantly. And I believe that's a perfect example of that, because what I saw in that guy's life and how far he went away to look like such a non-believer, I believe God took him out. Don't know for certain. I'll find out when I get to heaven, won't I? First John 5.16, that's exactly what it means. You know, throughout society, going back to society for a minute, men and women will do absolutely foolish things just to belong to an organization. There's such a desire to belong that there's a negative side to it. Okay, and I want to show you something, an illustration of this in John chapter 9. Turn to John chapter 9. Jesus healed a, ma a, a man who was born blind. There was a man born blind. He was an adult by this time. Jesus went up to him. His disciples said, Lord, there must be some consequence of sin either in this man's life or in his parents' life. Which one of them had sinned that would cause him to be born blind like this? And he said, neither one. It's not a consequence of either one of their sins, but that God will be glorified today. So Jesus spit in the mud, stirred it up, put it in his eyes, told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He went and he washed, and when he washed, he was able to see. So he goes before the Pharisees. But everyone's just freaking out by this time. The Pharisees are looking at him. Definitely this man sees. He is able to see. They bring together all these people, and they organize this little front here, and they say, to make sure we know that this man was born blind, go get his parents. So they go get the parents. In verse 16 of chapter 9, Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, speaking to Jesus, because he does not keep the Sabbath. And others said, Well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And then there was a division among them. And they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received who had received this sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but we, but by what means that he now sees, we do not know. Or, who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. And the reason... Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, that he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, ask him, he's of age. The same thing is true in chapter 12 of John. Jesus goes and raised Lazarus from the dead. And because he raised him from the dead, people were beginning to believe on Jesus. So the Pharisees and all the religious leaders get together, and because people were beginning to believe in Jesus because of Lazarus, they wanted to kill Lazarus and Jesus. Chapter 12, uh, verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Whose praise do you desire? Are you afraid of what friends will say because of your profession in Christ? These people in John damned their very souls to hell because of this code of belonging. They were afraid of being cast out of their little religious society, you see, because they were afraid to profess the true saving faith of Christ. All for the sake of belonging to their little association, to their little relationships. If Christ isn't the focus, it's a worthless endeavor, amen? So Paul begins to unfold for us the commitment involved to living out this profession of faith. And that introduction takes us now to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I, therefore...
the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He begins with therefore. Therefore, in the Bible, always takes you back. The therefore indicates that Paul is basing all of his exhortation on all of the doctrine in the first three chapters that we've been unfolding over these months. See, the Christian faith, as you guys know, is not based on ignorance. The Christian faith is not built on blind faith. Everything else in the world is built, religiously speaking, is built on blind faith. Because if you would begin to exhaust the belief system, there's no foundation on which it stands at all. It's shifting sand. Our faith is built on fact. The one true God of the universe sent his son, which was the plan to redeem mankind back to himself. And because of the resurrection, which is the reason we're here on Sunday, by the way, because death couldn't handle Jesus Christ and the grave couldn't hold Jesus Christ, our faith has some substance. Faith in and of itself does not save. It's the substance of your faith if you're in Christ that saves. He's the substance. We have knowledge, amen? Godly, heavenly, eternal knowledge is what we've been unfolding for the last months in chapters 1, 2, and 3. You know what people say? This, this is called doctrine. Okay? Doctrine, which means in its simplest form, it means correct teaching. People will say this a lot of times. Don't talk to me about doctrine. You know, or how about this? You know, I want to have a Bible study, but can we just not bring up doctrine and all the dogma involved? Let's just do that. Hey, if you're ever, by the way, if you're ever involved in a Bible study like that, just so you know, if anyone ever invites you to say, we're going to have a Bible study, we don't want to discuss doctrine, the Bible study ends as soon as you open up to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Because as soon as you open up to Genesis 1, verse 1, you are engaged in doctrine. No matter what you think, or no matter what anyone thinks, you are engaged in doctrine. In the beginning. Well, what's the beginning? What does beginning mean? Who's God? Well, who do you say God is? You are engaged in doctrine. Get it? Statements like that only reveal people's ignorance. You do not want to remain ignorant. We do not want to remain ignorant. We must continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that will only come by sound, solid teaching and the studying of God's Word. You know, some people, people have actually said this to me before. They've come in, young lady and says, uh, God told me. Guys have done it too. God told me. I'm supposed to marry that person. Really? He told you that? Yeah. Well, it's funny that he's a non-believer. <laughs> and what he told you is totally contrary to Scripture. Or a woman came in once and, you know, they were going through really difficult times in their marriage. And in the process or the dismantling of their marriage, she happened to run into her, here it is, her soulmate. Well, how do I know that when I married him that that was God's plan? Because in the process of all this disagreement, I found who I believe God brought to me is my soulmate. God told you nothing. Because that's not from God. That's a lie from the pit of hell. What God has brought together, let no man separate. Period. Let's not talk about doctrine, right? Or how about this? Here's another confession of ignorance. 
It doesn't matter what you believe just as long as you live right. How about that one? Or how about this one? Well, the Bible, it's all in the way that you interpret the Scripture. How about that? The Bible says that there's no prophecy, prophecy of Scripture that's of any private interpretation. Period. And these are the arguments you hear today. Or this. But it just feels right. You're living a life contrary to Scripture, and God told you this, and God told you that, and it just, it just feels right. Can you trust your feelings if it's contrary to Scripture? No, you can't trust your feelings. You want to line up your feelings, you want to line up your thinking with the Word of God, you see. So Paul says, therefore, because of all this doctrine, because of all this truth, therefore, we live it out, you see. See, what you believe determines how you live your life. What you believe determines what you believe your duty to be, you see. I was counseling a woman this week. And she came in, and I, and I counseled her years ago. doesn't go to this church. And uh, she's married. I've also counseled her husband. And usually when someone comes in without their spouse, I'll usually say, well, I'll listen to what you have to say for a couple minutes, but until you both come in together, I'm only hearing one side of the story. But I just happen to know this guy's character or the lack thereof. So everything she was saying parallels everything that I've experienced with this guy. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, is he willing to go to pastoral counseling, biblical counseling with you? She said, he is, but he won't come to you for that. And I said, why? He says, well, because he said, I'll go to any pastor but John Leader. And she said, well, why? Because everything goes back to the Bible with him. <laughs> because no matter what goes on, it's all the Bible this, the Bible that, you see? And it, it goes back to doctrine. Because he professes Christ, I hold him accountable to the knowledge of the Scriptures. So, Paul, I therefore, taking us back to what? Doctrine. Because of all the truth that's been unfolded to you now, because of all the truth that has been made clear to your thinking, he says, therefore. I therefore what? The prisoner of the Lord. The prisoner of the Lord. Here again, Paul refers to himself as the prisoner of the Lord. In reality, he was a prisoner of what? Rome, right? He was a prisoner in Rome. He was a prisoner of Rome. But see, Paul's perspective, no matter what his circumstances, you guys, was he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't allow his circumstances. Paul did not allow his discomfort to allow him to react in any other way than having a what kind of perspective? An eternal perspective. That's Paul. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul saw everything in relationship to who? God, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever happened in that brother's life, he immediately looked at it in light of God and God's plan for his life in the realm of eternity. I, therefore, because of all this doctrine, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy. You know, the maturing Christian or the mature Christian, when things like this happen to them in their life, their first response is, Lord... What am I to learn from this? Lord, what is it you would have of me in light of this? Lord, how does this affect the kingdom? Lord, how does this affect you and your plan for me and those that you placed around me? That's the response of a mature Christian. 
from the smallest to the greatest things in our life. Paul included God in everything. His mindset went immediately to the Lord Jesus Christ, always with an eternal perspective of life. So I, therefore, because of all this doctrine, am a prisoner of the Lord. That's who's writing you, he says. You see, don't forget. Psalm 16, which we read from today, says this. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. So we read scriptures in the morning. The trick is to find out how it correlates with our study. Verse 8, 16 of Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Paul was in a place where it wasn't the most easiest place to walk, right? To walk worthy is we're instructed to do. But he did it, didn't he? And he did it as a great example. You know, a lot of times, guys, when circumstances come into your life, difficulties come into your life, trials come into your life, which, by the way, the only way to mature in Christ is by trials. They are the testing of your what? Faith. Allowed to test your faith. You'll find out whose you are. You'll find out if your faith is real real quick by the trials that are allowed to come into your life. A lot of people who... Well, I'll, I'll give Jesus a try. I have a friend like that. Okay, I'll give this Christianity thing a try. And I just saw over the months, things just weren't going the right way. The comforts just weren't there. You know, and, and trying to live a life without compromise is so hard when you're doing it in your own strength. And as soon as the wheels begin to fall off the wagon of life, who do you blame? You blame God. Remember Adam? God comes to Adam and Eve. Eve was deceived. Adam rebelled. Adam was the one given the instruction, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember that? Who did God call? First of all, he called the man. Adam, where are you? Even though Eve sinned first. Adam, where are you at? She blamed the devil. And you know what he did? Lord, it was the woman, by the, by, of, which, of which, by the way, you gave me. <laughs> you fall into deep enough sin, you begin to blame God. If you allow yourself to get off track long enough, far enough, you'll go so far away, you'll begin to blame God. Because there's that fallen part of us, right? We were at enmity with God. We were at war with God. God saved you and brought you out of that war and He gave you peace. And we have peace in Christ. Because of that sin that's in us, when things aren't going just our way, in your mind, think about it a minute. We have a tendency to blame God. To blame God. So he says, I therefore, that takes us back to the doctrine, the prisoner of the Lord, he looked at everything in light of eternity, and he looked at himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He says this, I beseech you, I beseech you, to beseech is to call near, to invite, to invoke, to beg. Paul was a beggar. He begged, he pleaded. Paul pleaded and begged many times for the, his recipients of these letters to respond to God in obedience. Listen to some of these. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, therefore, I urge you, in, in, in tip, imitate me. Thinking of intimidate. Imitate me as I what? Imitate Christ. He begged them. He pleaded. 
2 Corinthians 5.20, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, listen to this, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and as pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. There's a war. Your spiritual man, because Christ lives in you, believer, wants to please God. But the fleshful, sinful side of you wants to please self. That's a war that is never ending. You know that? Your desires to please self, which will always be contrary to God, will be screaming and yelling daily. That's not the problem that your flesh desires to sin. The problem is when we do what? Fulfill the desires of the flesh. That's what we're called to kill them. We're called to kill the desire. I beg you, he says, to have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. I beg you so that your conduct is honorable among all the non-believers is what he's saying, you see. I urge you. I'm pleading with you. I beseech you. There's been people who've been in unrepented sin and I've begged them to repent. Because you, you know what's on the other end, don't you? If you walk with the Lord long enough, you know when you see someone... It, 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 people in here, some of us have rebelled against God and we know the consequence, don't we? Because who God loves, He chastens, He disciplines. So you beg and you plead with people, don't go down that road, right? Don't go down that road. I plead with you, this is the heart of a minister. Passionate zeal to beg and plead with the people of God. Oh, continue in His path. Walk in His plan, in, in this place of righteousness. Live out who you are, He's saying. I beseech you. I beseech you, he says. And that should be our passion. See, he did not want his listeners, you guys, to be naive or ignorant to the truth. He did not want them to remain in a place of ignorance. Or be naive, because when someone is and they're not filled up with the Word of God, you know what they become? Very vulnerable. Very vulnerable. It means open to attack, to be damaged capable of being physically or emotionally wounded. You step off into the place of sin and don't allow the Word of God to fill you up and flow out of you, you become vulnerable to fall right into the depth and the pit of sin, which will destroy you and the people that you're associated with in life. Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word I have hid it in my heart that I might not sin against you. Great illustration of this. And I want you to open there because I just want you to see it with your eyes. Keep your finger here in Ephesians and look at Proverbs chapter 7. See, and I beseech you. Proverbs chapter 7. My son... Keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live, and my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin. The understanding that you guys have of God, look at it as the nearest of kin. The closest thing you have in relationship to God is the understanding of who He is, you see? 
that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house, verse 6, I looked through my lattice and saw among the simple and perceived among the use a young man devoid of what? Understanding. Everything begins with understanding. Everything begins under, understanding. Prior to that comes knowledge, right? Knowledge leads to understanding. Understanding, true understanding, leads to application. Passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark of night, and there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot. You know, Satan will dress things up to look really good. He'll dress it up to look so appealing to the eye, right? Very appealing. Sin looks appealing. Looks really good. She was loud and rebellious, and her feet would not stay at home. Verse 12. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. Sin lurks, guys. It's around every corner. So she caught him and kissed him with an impudent face. It means a hardened face. With an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows, so I come out to meet you, diligently to seek your face. And I found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's on a business trip. Come on, let's party. He's gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him, and he'll come home on an appointed day. Now check it out, guys. Verse 21. With her enticing speech, she caused him to what? Yield. Submit. We're called to yield to the Holy Spirit. We're called to yield to the Spirit of God, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, right? So that we can walk worthy. Caused him to yield with her flattering lips. She seduced him, verse 22. Immediately he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter. You ever seen a group of cows at a slaughterhouse and a line? They have these big walls now and they kind of zigzag them back and forth. And they just kind of, they just kind of go back and forth. One gets up there right in the front. I don't know what they do now, but they used to slit their throat. Right to the next one. Right to the next one. Right to the next one. When a flock of sheep being attacked by a wolf, you know what the other sheep do? They pretend like it's not going on. They just like, ah, oh, it's not going on. Ooh. Don't be a fool. We have the wisdom in the scriptures. Don't be a fool. Simply don't be a fool. Or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver, as the bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. Ignorance. A lack of understanding. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children, and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Do you notice who was slain? The strong. As soon as you think you're strong in and of yourself, take heed lest you what? Fall. It's only by God's grace, you guys, that you stand. It's only by God's grace that you are able not to fall into rebellious sin. It's by His grace. So yield yourself to His grace. Yield yourself to His power, and you'll be able to, as we'll get to in a minute, walk worthy.
Paul's saying, I beseech you by the mercy. I beseech you by the mercies of God in Romans. I beg you. Her house, verse 27, is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. You know, I actually did that devotional with my son this past week. And I said, I said Cody, have you ever been in a place with, where you're around a bunch of non-believers and you see potential danger or you see potential evil and they're absolutely blind to it? And he goes, yeah. Well, you know why? Because he's got the Spirit of God in him. There's a level of discernment and understanding because of the knowledge that we have in Christ that you have that believers don't have. Non-believers don't have. That's the gift that we're granted to Christ. Understanding. Knowledge. So what are you doing with the knowledge you have, right? So there's a danger involved here of knowing and not what? Doing. There's a great danger. Great danger. Everyone in here, we're all accountable for what we know. If you sit in here today, you've been coming to church for years, you remain a non-believer, you are accountable for everything you know. You're accountable. Believers, you're accountable. 2 Peter 2, verse 21. 2 Peter 2, verse 21 says this. I'll just read it. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of the righteous, or the way of righteousness, than having known it, to turn from the holy commandments delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. This is speaking of an apostate. Apostasy means to defect. Apostasy means to turn away from that which you know to be true. Apostasy is someone who came up to the line of belief and gained all of the understanding of who Christ is, everything that Christ has done, the gift of Jesus Christ on our behalf, and the offering of eternal life, and then to turn from it. It reached the head, but it never reached the heart. Because if God does a divine work in you, and He breathes spiritual life into you, He says that's what kind of life everlasting. A lot of people will respond to some gospel message with an intellectual knowledge and understanding. They were never transformed. They turn away from everything they know. They never act on what they know. That's apostasy. That's what Peter's talking about. Having knowledge of the Lord and Savior and went back to the former life, having never committed their lives inwardly. John said they went out from among us for they weren't really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They would have continued on in the faith. And it's so hard to discern when a true believer walks so far in rebellion as to whether their faith is real or not. We just don't know. How do you know? Only God knows. That friend I told you about? I'll find out if his faith was real when I get to heaven, right? I don't know for certain. I don't know. No one does but God. Faith without works is dead. This divine principle in, in verse 21, unending consequences. You know, some people say, well, then it's better just not to tell the truth. If we're accountable for what you know, why, why even tell people? Right? You know, uh, the Allens, we're getting ready to send them off as missionaries. Don't go, because now everyone's going to be accountable for what you share with them, right? What did Jesus say? Preach the gospel to who? Every creature. Jesus gave us a great commission, right? 
Make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel to every creature. So it might be better not to know and not to do than to know and not to do, but it's way better if you know and you do. And that's the point. That's the point of our study. Do what you know. Live out who you profess. If you profess Christ, you're accountable to that profession. I hold my very own children accountable because they profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I hope you do, parents. I hope you hold your kids accountable to their profession of faith if indeed they profess Jesus Christ. Don't be foolish enough to think that just because they said some prayer when they were six or because someone was baptized, okay? True faith works itself out and is made visible throughout life. And then from that comes the assurance of salvation, which is a gift. It's a gift, you see. Many people profess Christ. Paul's saying, walk out what you know to be true. Walk it out. Live it out. So Paul invites us. He begs us guys to walk what? To walk worthy. Okay? So here we are. To walk worthy. Therefore, because of the doctrine, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I look at everything from an eternal perspective, I beg you to walk worthy. I beg you to walk worthy. Walk means daily conduct. All throughout the New Testament, walk means daily conduct. And it's the, it's the entire theme of the last three chapters of Ephesians. And everything goes back to this verse 1. Now we're going to see it worked out practically. We're going to learn about uh, the way we talk, the things we do, how we relate to one another in the body, how we relate as husband and wife, how we relate as father and children, and so on. We'll see specifics of this one verse, walking worthy, you see, and what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. Paul said this, Colossians 1.10. Paul actually prays this. He goes, I pray that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of the Lord. In the knowledge of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2.11 is you know how we exhorted and comforted, and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Your citizens of heaven, believer. Your citizenship is in heaven. Did you know that? We've learned about it. Therefore, we have to, in our call, to live as heavenly citizens, you see? That's what we're called to do. To walk. Daily conduct. Living within all the resources that are available to you and I in chapters 1, 2, and 3, right? Because what have we been blessed with? Spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. How many spiritual blessings? All. Every. Very good. You've been blessed with every, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We learned about that weeks ago. Enabled to live up and uphold the perfected law of God. Amen? The perfect law of love, we're able to uphold it because the perfecter lives in you. If you strengthen the inner man, chapter 3, verse 16, you begin to focus on strengthening the inner man and yield yourself to the Holy Spirit who resides in you, Jesus Christ is able to settle down and be at home in you, and then you will be rooted and grounded in love. And then you'll be able to do above all that you could ever think or imagine, you see? And we're able to comprehend that love. And He's able to do, you see? Notice, it's not what you're able to do, it's what He's able to do through you. 
But this is conditional. Chapter 4 is conditional as to what you do in Chapter 3, verses 14 to 20. A yielded man or woman will be able to walk worthy. That leads us to worthy. What does it mean to be worthy? Worthy comes from a root that has to do with this, balancing the scales. You get it? The root word has a meaning of balancing the scales. It's a behavior that's based on correct thinking. We've got all the thinking down. We've got all the knowledge down. Now we have to act on the knowledge. We have to act on the thinking. We have to allow the knowledge to transform our what? Thinking. And once the thinking is changed, we live out what we know to be true. God's glorified through your life, you see. So we're called to have walk, our walk, our daily conduct, worthy. Worthy. Equalizing the scales. If this is a response of gratitude, you guys, rather than fear. Remember in the Old Testament, what did God say to Israel? If you do this, I will what? Bless you. If you live like this, I will bless you. If you do, I will bless. If you're a Christian here today, you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your position is perfect righteousness in Christ because all of his righteousness is placed on your account. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You're already blessed. Therefore, because you're blessed, because you're blessed, live out the blessing. Because of what I did at the cross... Live in response to what I did for you. You're already blessed. You got all the resources. You got all the power. You got me living in you, he says. Live it out, you see. Here it is. To walk your daily conduct worthy means this. Remember your position? Look at this, guys. Okay, wake up. Look at this. Your position? What's this? Perfect righteousness, right? Here's your position. Okay? We're called to work, walk worthy. To walk worthy means to live your life in a manner that matches your position in Christ. Because this is what you are and you have the ability to live it, just live it. Living your life to match your position in Christ. That's what it is to walk worthy. Let your daily conduct be worthy of everything that you've been granted by God as a gift. Isn't that exciting? You have it all. You have it all. We have it all. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just remember Calvary. Remember the cross. Remember God's wrath. Okay? Think of His wrath that was poured out on His Son as a gift to you. And you've been granted His mercy. I've been granted His mercy. Thank God. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ for His grace. Amen? That's the, that's the gift. And because of that, live it out. Live in a manner that matches your position in Christ. Because of all this doctrine, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, see all things in light of eternity. Hope you do too. I beseech you, I beg you, to walk your daily conduct worthy, matching your position in Christ. Worthy of the calling. Worthy of the calling. Here's a passionate minister right here. Amen? Paul was passionate. He had passion for the truth. He had way more than just intellectual understanding, right? You don't want a leader. You don't want a shepherd. And you don't want to be one who just is filled with knowledge, right? Just theology. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you walk worthy of God. That's true. And then just want to explain it. No zeal, no passion, no begging. 
That's a passionate minister. That's a minister who's willing to lay his life down for the sheep. That's a minister who's willing to lead his sheep in that manner. And his biggest concern, here it is, his biggest concern, Paul's biggest concern, is leading the flock into a state of perfection. You know what that means? Maturity. The whole purpose for the church gathering is the perfection of the saints. It's for the maturity of those who are saved, you see. See, we get this all mixed up. Now, I'm all about the gospel, and I will preach the gospel from here just as I will teach you. And when there's a proper, perfect place to insert the good news of Jesus Christ, which is all good news anyway, I'll give the simple gospel. But the main function of this gathering is to equip you into a place of maturity, spiritual maturity. And when you're perfected, as you mature, guess what your desire is for your other brothers and sisters in your life? To lead them into a place of maturity. Because you guys, we're all ministers of the gospel. God has people in your life that I'll never have contact with. God has people in your life that the person next to you, or two or three people down, will never have contact with, who are Christians. And everything that you get fed here, if you go digest it, right, when you digest something, you're able to grow. When you digest it, now you're able to feed someone else. And then we're just working, unified together as one for the same goal, the perfecting of the saints, you see? You can't hold that truth in. You'll have the opportunity to share the gospel. Your life will be the gospel. Your life will be a living gospel. Amen? Brethren, beloved, passion. That's my passion. I'm not going to sit up here monotone. And I know that sometimes my zeal comes off as though I'm, like, angry. It's just zeal. It's zeal to see the perfection of the saints, the maturity of the saints. Don't forget my countenance. Remember what I told you a long time ago? I got a scar here, so sometimes it looks like I'm mad. And I'm not mad. I'm passionate like Paul was passionate. And my desire and growth is to become more passionate like Paul was passionate. Would I want to be like the Apostle Paul? Yeah. He's way, way more of a yielded, self-sacrificing servant than I've ever thought of being. But I'll glean from the brother through the scriptures. See, you can't turn ministry off, you guys. When I go home at the end of today, or we go home at the end of the week, and I meet with men in this church because I want to build up godly men to be leaders. There's women who meet here. They're nurturing and growing women to be godly leaders. You don't go home at the end of the week and just kind of brush your hands off and say, Oh, we, we've done it. We've made it. We've arrived. Never ending. Because as God brings the maturity of the saints to this level, you're reaching other people, and God's birthing spiritual life into them, and then we have babes in Christ, you see. It's never, ever is going to end until we see the glorious return of our Master. Every eye will see Him. Every tongue will confess that He's Lord. Period. Every knee will bow. Do you live your life in anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ? That's the question. Do you wake up and go, man, the Lord could return today. I want to walk worthy. I want to live my life in a manner that properly reflects Him. Because, you know, He's coming back. When? When we least expect it. So you expect Him to come back in the next half hour? Probably not. Therefore, very likely that He will, right? Paul said this, It's Him we preach, warning every man 
teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's Colossians 1.28. In Galatians 4.19, My dear children, for whom, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I'm suffering like a woman does. We have had some new moms in here who know what birth pains are all about. That's the way Paul was about the body maturing. Anticipating the arrival of the baby, he was anticipating the arrival of maturity in their lives, you see. Unending. And that leads us to, as we're getting to wrap up, I therefore, because of all this doctrine that you understand, the prisoner of the Lord, look at everything from an eternal perspective, I beg you, I beseech you to walk daily conduct, worthy, allow your life to match your position in Christ, according to the calling with which you were called. You know what this calling is, guys? This is the calling, not to some ministerial role, as it's oftentimes misinterpreted. It's the call to salvation. You were called to be saved by God. That's called the election, as we learned in chapter 1. You were predestined. And because people have a problem with God being sovereign and predestining you to salvation, they want to say, well, this means a call to ministry. No, it's a call to salvation. He chose you before the foundation of the earth. Don't fight that. Why would you want to argue against that? You should rejoice in it, believer. Amen? Come on now. Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Romans 11.29, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble. Because you've been called, make your call sure by walking a life that's worthy of the calling. Amen? Live it out. That's what he's saying. Philippians 3.14 says we have a high calling. A high calling. First, First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.9, we have a holy calling. Hebrews 3.1, we have a heavenly calling. You're called. He called you. He saved you. Walk worthy of the calling, he's saying. God called you just... Live out who you are. You know, for those of you who have kids, let's say you have a 14-year-old and they're acting like they're eight. Throwing a little tantrum. What do you say to them? Act your what? Act your age, would you? Young whippersnapper. Act your age. Live like who you are, you see, is what he's saying. Live according to who you are in Christ. Walk worthy of the calling. You're saved. You're a wretched sinner just like me, saved by grace. Granted the gifts and the ability to walk worthy of the calling. So verse 1 is the practical starting point of the rest of Ephesians, guys. And I wanted to spend some time in it for the sake of understanding what this is all about. We've learned the doctrine. You've learned your position. You understand the theology of all that Christ has done on your behalf. Now we're simply called to walk it out. And as we begin to break it down, we will see the practical, applicable parts of life that all go back to this first verse. You know what? It doesn't matter how rich you are, how prominent you are, how famous you are, what you've done, how long you've been coming to this church, how long you've been going to that church, how big your Bible is, what kind of ministries you've served in, how much ministry you've done in your life, how many mission trips you've gone on. It doesn't matter if 
you're not walking worthy of the calling. If you're not walking worthy of the calling, it doesn't matter. So let's walk worthy, amen? I had a guy come in and tell me, I have not missed a day of reading my Bible since 1988. And I just sat there. I was like, so what? Because the things that you brought to me today, you act like you've been a Christian for about six months. I said, why don't you think about taking a few verses, going over them, meditating on them, and allowing those verses, the power of the Word of God, to transform your life and your thinking. And you went like this. Wow. Because, you know, he gets up every day, oh, I've got to read three and a half chapters now. I've got to make sure I read my three and a half chapters today. That means nothing, man, if you're not walking worthy of the calling. You see? That's what Paul is beseeching us to do. He's begging us. He's begging us. You know, with all these Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers and all this stuff today, you see all these, a lot of really dumb phrases which are really embarrassing. There's this one that has this, never mind, I don't even want to share that. But there's a lot of foolishness out there. You know, I've yet to see one that says, right here on the front of your shirt, watch me. I'm a child of God. Watch my life. Because I'm saved by grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian and a pastor, during World War II, he attempted to dismantle Nazism. He attempted to go as far as to remove Adolf Hitler. He was arrested, taken to a Nazi, Nazi uh, concentration camp. Prior to going to the Nazi concentration camp, he was given the ability and the opportunity to give some religious message or the gospel. He stood up. And he said, to see and know the gospel of Christ, just watch me. Watch my life. Paul says, look, I beseech you, I, therefore, because of all this that you know, prisoner of the Lord, who sees everything from an eternal perspective, I beseech you, I beg you to walk worthy of your call to salvation, which he called you to and has enabled you to uphold. Walk worthy of it. Live out who you are. That's what we're here today. Amen? So I encourage you this day to go out of here today to live out who you are. You are perfectly holy in His sight. Because you're holy, therefore, live righteously. That's what He's saying. And then next week we'll get to the fact that we're called, the first matter He deals with, because of the high calling, is lowliness. Humility of the walk. Amen? All right, let's pray.